What's up, everybody? It's Sathya Sam here, and welcome to the New Man Podcast. Um, you are hearing me first before you hear my epic intro music, and so you know what that means. It's an interview, and I am really excited to share this one with you. Uh, you've probably been hearing me blab about it uh, for the last week or so because um, my guest is really exceptional. His name is Garrett Johnson. He's from Fight the New Drug, one of the biggest players in the porn uh, recovery space, or you could even say they're a little anti-porn. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they would phrase it, but they, um, they do incredible, incredible work. And um, I, I just got connected through these guys on Instagram, of all things, uh, probably about two years ago when I first started out in Deep Clean. They reached out and said, hey, we love your stuff. Would you want to interview on our podcast? I interviewed on their podcast uh, pretty shortly after. I was so excited. In fact, um, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to share this with Garrett, but um, when I first launched Deep Clean, um, so Deep Clean launched December 2018, and it was probably in like February or March, I was talking to one of my friends who's an entrepreneur. I really respect him, really look up to him. And you know, he was just encouraging me. He's saying, dude, you're doing such a good thing. This is so amazing. Um, and he's like, man, wouldn't it be amazing if one day like you got, uh, got to interview with Fight the New Drug or got to do something with them? And I, I remember him saying that and thinking like, Oh, that would be amazing. You know, I love dreaming and talking big like that. But I was like, but bro, like, it's going to take so much time before I can even reach that place. And it was probably, I don't know, maybe four months later, five months later that they reached out to me. And uh, when I told my friend, he was like, what? Like, it was just, it was shocking. It was kind of one of those things where um, it's almost like God is paying attention to even just the little things you say when they're not formal prayers. And that was so amazing. So I, I interviewed with them. My podcast didn't get released. Uh, sorry, my interview with them didn't get released until, um, gosh, it was probably uh, over a year later, uh, post-interview. Uh, but the timing of it was really good. And it really um, allowed me to reach a lot more people. If it would have got released right away, it would have been... Um, yeah, just wouldn't have been as impactful. So anyways, I'm super grateful for Fight the New Drug. They've really, um, they've just changed the conversation on uh, pornography and, and they've come at it from a very neutral perspective. They're non-religious, non-legislative. And so they um, they don't have an inherent bias. And, and I think that adds a incredible strength to their messaging and it allows them to just reach people that um, that maybe a, a ministry like mine wouldn't be able to reach just having a particular kind of religious flair to it. So just amazing what they're doing. And um, what I love about this especially is that Garrett is not just, um, he doesn't just work for Fight the New Drug. He's got his own story and uh, we're going to get into all of that. So anyway, I'm probably sounding like a broken record because I've been just so excited about this podcast and I keep talking about it. Um, but without further ado, let's send you over. Here's my interview with Garrett Johnson of Fight the New Drug. Welcome to the New Man Podcast, a show for brave men to experience freedom in their faith, sexuality, and relationships. The goal? goal? To provide practical tools and timeless principles that help you become the man you were made to be. be. And now, your host, Sathya Sam. All right. Well, we are here with Garrett Johnson of Fight the New Drug. Uh, most of you have probably heard of Fight the New Drug, but just in case you haven't, let me give you guys a bit of a proper description and explanation of what they do. So Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects, using only science, facts, and personal accounts. 
They've been trusted by over 500 schools from around the world. Their live presentations have reached over 800,000 people, and they have over 6 million followers across their social media platforms. And today we're speaking with Garrett Johnson, who is a Fight the New Drug representative. He's a presenter and podcast host. In fact, I had the privilege of sitting down with him on Fight the New Drugs podcast, Consider Before Consuming. And Garrett has been working with the organization for years. So he's presented to nearly 200 audiences from around the world, including the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And he's also done some unique projects to bring awareness to the harmful effects of pornography, including running 30 marathons in 30 days and riding his bicycle across the United States dragging chains. Garrett, thanks so much for being here, man. Thanks for having us. We, uh, I'm excited to be here and fight is also excited to have the opportunity to share with your audience what we do. Yeah, this is super fun. Um, it's really cool because I got to obviously sit down with you uh, a while back now, maybe almost two years ago, and you interviewed me for Consider Before Consuming. And um, I think anybody who's in this space has heard of Fight and is very aware of just the incredible work you guys are doing. Um, but I think one thing that's really cool about your story, and this is where I'd, I'd love to just kick it off, is um, you're not just somebody who brings a little bit of acumen to an organization like Fight the New Drug. Uh, you do that, of course, and you're, you're a great podcast host and interviewer. Um, but you have your personal story as well, and, and that kind of tagged in there at the end of your bio. Um, I wouldn't mind talking about both of them a little bit. Which one came first? You did a marathon, and then you also rode your bicycle across the States. Uh, which one came first? I did the 30 marathons in 30 days wearing handcuffs before okay. the coast to coast and chains. And so that was the chronological, chronological order. Okay. Okay. Question. Yeah. 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 So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? What inspired you to do anything like this? And then I guess specifically uh, 30 marathons in 30 days. Yeah. I have to like smile a little bit at that question because it's like a loaded question. Like why did I quit my job and decide to run 30 marathons in 30 Give days? Give us the whole gamut, man. Don't hold back. We don't mind the story. Okay. So I was uh, born in the mid eighties and I experienced early porn consumption and um, I consumed it impulsively where like there was no forethought of the future or possible consequences. It was just straight impulsivity. Like, okay, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, like a reinforcing or a short-term gratification there. And so I would turn to it impulsively through elementary and junior high and high school and in those three areas elementary junior high and high school like porn was normalized in my circles and my parents at the same time didn't talk to me about healthy sexuality um and so my education my sex ed came from pornography and um it wasn't until i would consider it up until this point probably just a, an unhealthy habit um, with my pornography consumption. And then if you fast forward to like 2007, 2008, and I get my first iPhone and, you know, my responsibilities are starting to increase because I'm an adult. And so like stress is more present. Anxiety might be, was more present. Um, maybe a little bit of depression was more present rather than comparing that time of my life compared to like high school or junior higher or elementary. Um, and so because I had reinforced that behavior or that habit for so long, when I got the phone in my pocket, 
um, the ease of access to the privacy really escalated. That's, those are two things that really encouraged or fueled this behavior. Um, so when I would feel the stress or when I would feel the anxiety or the depression or the loneliness or the rejection, um, or just when I wanted to engage in escapism, I would turn to pornography. And so over the course of 29 years, maybe not 29, more like 25 years, because I was first exposed around five years old. Um, over the course of 24 years or so, I was reinforcing that behavior. And that was my sex ed, like I said. Wow. And then just, just to interrupt you really quick, you mentioned yeah. you were first exposed at five, which is, that's quite a bit younger than even the average age. Do you mind me just asking what, what were the details around that? Yeah, it was, a, I think, a typical situation where I was hanging out with my friends. Uh, or I should say my friend at this, the first exposure was with one individual and uh, we saw it on TV, um, a late night show. And um, we were both, I think, experienced some short-term gratification. I don't think that it was what is considered like today's mainstream internet um, pornography, where it was a little bit softer. And so there wasn't as much of a surprise element that some kids might experience today. Yeah. Okay, that makes um, sense. I remember the first time. I remember the first time I saw penetrative sex in pornography, and I did feel it was different because before that it was magazine or you know like late night television stuff, and I do remember the difference, and I do remember feeling disgusted um, and also a little bit confused the first time seeing like what we would consider today like mainstream internet porn. Yeah, it's mixed emotions for sure. Yeah. yeah. But f fast forwarding again to that, um, me turning to it and then um, getting into a position where I'm dating more. And I was, one thing that I've always wanted since I was young is I've always wanted a small house and a big family. And um, so... I was looking for marriage. I wanted that companionship. And um, I met my wife and we started dating. We didn't talk about the harmful effects of pornography and um, we didn't talk about pornography consumption at all, my consumption or generally speaking. And so I always thought that as I transitioned into marriage that I would not consume pornography anymore. And then when, when I got married, it introduced a new aspect to it. Um, and that was deceit because we weren't open and I didn't engage in self-disclosure with her and that openness. Um, it encouraged and fueled deceit. And that was really the first time that I was experiencing this because when I was growing up, my parents really didn't ask me about pornography consumption. So I, there was no deceit there. And so then my porn consumption became more and more unwanted where I did want to, you know, move away from that, where before uh, I wouldn't say that necessarily I wanted to stop. I thought it was fine, um, but I didn't, I didn't uh, know about the harmful effects. I didn't know what areas it was affecting. Like I said, it was very impulsive at the time. Um, but yeah, so moving forward into my marriage, I actually went through six years of marriage without my wife knowing about wow. my pornography consumption. Okay. And I'm kind of like hesitant to talk about that. Like, I'm kind of like, I don't love talking about that aspect because I don't want to give off the perception that um, 
all guys watch porn. And if your husband or your significant other is hasn't talked about porn, that that means they're watching it in secrecy. Right. That makes sense. I don't want to give off that. Yeah, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone watches porn, but that was the case for me. And I think that again, you know, it speaks to the, the privacy, the ease of access and the privacy, the fact that I was able to do that. So um, I think this, the whole original question was based on why did I decide to do the marathons? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Just before you get there, I, if you don't mind me asking, it's an interesting word you've used, like calling it deceit. Um, and I, I think it's the right word. And I think it's the word that maybe guys are afraid to actually acknowledge it that way. We, you know, we try to kind of cover it up or mask it a little bit so that it doesn't seem so terrible, but can you just maybe just elaborate a little bit? Like, why is it deceitful to not have that conversation with your wife if she's not asking about it or if the subject isn't being broached? So I think you're deceiving. I'll just speak to my personal account where I think I was deceiving myself and um, deceiving Hmm. my wife. Um, The reason why I think it was harmful for me was because I wasn't engaging the self-disclosure and the openness. Um, I really had this internal monologue of like, if my wife really knew what I was doing, like I had this almost like an Instagram on Instagram, you know, like we look good, but then if people knew the real side, what would they think about us? And I think that was within my most meaningful relationship with my spouse. And so I had that perception of like, dang, that shame, like if she knew, she would know like uh, that, I don't know, I didn't know what the consequences would be. Yeah. And so hiding that, I don't think I was able to have her full acceptance. Um, and I also from hiding that from myself, I don't think I was able to accept myself, because if I'm hiding it, then, you know, I'm not accepting of my own behavior. And um, I think that led to like, you can't have empathy without first having self-disclosure and openness and acceptance. Like empathy is not an option without that information. And so that deceit, that deceit really was harmful um, on my, you know, on, on me emotionally, it was harmful on me mentally. Um, And I think it introduced, like, it was jeopardizing, it was putting at risk the harmony within our relationship and our intimacy with each other. Yeah, it's really well said. Um, And just one more question. Sorry, it's like I I asked you a leading question here, and then you're giving me some great stories leading up. So I want to double down on a couple things here. But I guess the question is, like, why didn't marriage fix the problem? Because I think a lot of the single guys that come to me are sort of um, operating under that same illusion of like, oh, it's tough now while I'm single. Um, But, you know, once I'm in a relationship and more sexually active, then that part of me is gratified. Why is it that marriage didn't solve the problem? So to answer that question as to why it didn't solve the problem, I want to give an example that I have that happened to me personally, and it kind of ties into the endurance events thing. So we'll give a little bit of background. Perfect on why I did the 30 marathons in 30 days. So I did an event called the Wasatch 100, where you run 100 miles through the mountains. And um, during the event, you 
gain 25,000 feet of elevation and you drop 25,000 feet of elevation during the 100 miles and you have 36 hours to finish. It's an individual event. It's probably, I don't know, like one of the most challenging endurance events in the world, like up there with like the best endurance athletes are doing this event. And so I, I got into this event and one of the things, one of the prerequisites before you, it's a lottery and my name got called, but then you have to do some trail work. So you have to actually go to the trails and you have to build these trails. So you have like pitchforks and shovels and wheelbarrows and clubs. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you're, just, you're just building these, these trails. And so the way that I, the reason why I think that marriage isn't the solution is because I had 24 to 25 years of reinforcing that trail of like, if you think about our neural pathways as trails and like mm. you're building these trails and you're making them so they're more permanent so that they're easier to run on. And that same thing happens within our brain. Like the more we reinforce that behavior, the stronger that connection becomes. And I think, well, I know that this is called Hebb's law and um, Hebb's law is that neurons that fire together, wire together. And that was brought about in like the mid nineties. And that proves today true as well, that our brains are constantly changing. And so if someone, I'll just speak to my personal account again, like I went into marriage with this trail that was well-developed and the trail was not going to disappear overnight it's going to require some work yeah to repat if i have to go up and redo a trail and and make sure the other one is non-existent it's going to require a lot of work and a lot of sweat you know and time and so that's what i soon realized and i didn't engage i didn't accept the potential consequences until after six years of marriage and so now we've been married almost 11 years. And so I, again, through those first six years, the reason why I was scared to engage in the openness was because I wasn't willing to accept the potential consequences of like her leaving and yeah. being like, I'm done. I don't like this or whatever. Yeah, it's really, I mean, that's such a profound metaphor you gave. And when you study neuroscience a little bit and learn about brain pathways, that's pretty much the perfect analogy of, of kind of what it's like and um, the ease of those trails as they sort of get reinforced. So clearly, like you have a little bit of an affinity for fitness, um, endurance and that kind of stuff. So tell us then a little bit about, um, I suppose, where we are kind of in your story, like you've reached this point now, you're six years in, you're ready to sort of face the truth and, and come clean. What, what happened there? How did all of that shake down? So, like I said, in elementary, junior high, and high school, porn was normalized. And I didn't have a counter voice that was, like, telling me about the harmful effects of pornography. No one had mentioned that. Hmm. And um, I did have internal this internal dialogue happening of, like, is it? Like, I just this out of this curiosity, like, maybe I am starting to experience some of these negative, negative effects of pornography. Um, and in 2015, my wife was a coach at the high school, at the local high school here. And um, I went to pick her up. We were sharing a car at the time. I went to pick her up and I saw that Fight the New Drug was presenting and I was waiting for my wife. 
And so that's the first time that I heard about Fight the New Drug. Oh, wow. And I sat, yeah, it's kind of a weird experience, kind of like a unique thing where there was no plan. I didn't hear about them on social media. It just happened to be in, in person. And they were doing a community event. And so I sat down and watched a portion of the presentation. And the presentation covers the brain, the heart, and the world. It talks about how it negatively affects those areas. And um, so I, th I sat through part of the presentation. Ariel came in and she also sat through part of the presentation. And at this time, she has no clue that I'm consuming pornography. And so I, we went home and a couple of weeks later, I finally accepted the potential consequences. I decided that I needed to finally accept those potential consequences of telling the truth so that I can move forward. Wow. And so I told Ariel the truth and it was not easy. And I always make sure to like take a second and not breeze over that to acknowledge like the difficulty for both parties, hmm. for the person disclosing and for the person receiving this information. Yeah. Tell us a bit about it. Why, why is it difficult on both sides of it? I think for the person that is, I, I guess I'll just speak to my account is like, for me, I, I wasn't, yeah, it's just the unknown. It's just like, you don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know if that person is going to accept you fully when they know who you are fully. Yeah. And um, so there is that fear there. And I think that for the person receiving the information, man, it's like, it's like a glitch in the relationship. It's like you thought your relationship was one way and you can find out, I don't know, you can compare to like almost like buying a house and then you find out that the foundation is cracked yep. or something like that. And then you're, man, this changes the narrative and maybe I don't want this house anymore. And so, yeah, I think that that was a tough thing. And I, I can't speak for my wife, but um, I can say that it was challenging for her to receive this information and it wasn't an easy, easy process to work through it. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite sayings, and I have, a, I have it inked because it's like one of my favorite sayings and it's that moments of bliss are not free. Wow. And um, I think it's a saying that's going to always be true. It always has been true. And it always will be true. That moments of bliss are not free. So if we want a moment of bliss, we have to pay the price. If we decide not to pay the price, then we'll pay it later at a later mm -hmm. time. So it's either pay the price now or pay the price later. And so that really was encouraging to me that to, to, to finally tell the truth. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, really profound. Um, so obviously you told, told the truth, um, you guys are still together. Um, so you've been able to work through it. Uh, is this where the 30 marathons in 30 days starts to come into play or how, how do things connect? There? Yes. Soon after that, I was about to turn 30 years old and it had been a several months, um, without consuming pornography. And I was kind of flabbergasted at like, just very shocked at the fact that I went 29 years without hearing about the other side of the narrative like I was always just everything was normalizing pornography and 
So I did the 30 marathons in 30 days as uh, because I was shocked and I looked around and um, there's this term called epistemology and it's the theory of knowledge. And so the way you try to determine like what is a justified belief and what is just my opinion. Hmm. And it's like, so it's trying to differentiate the, the difference between a justified belief and an opinion. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't know what epistemology was, but back then I think I was going through epistemology, the process. And the way you do that is you look at authority and you say, what are the authorities saying? Then you look at the logic, like what are the trends and the facts? And then you also follow your intuition. And so all of those things, as I looked at the authorities and the research and the science and facts and personal accounts, I, I started realizing that there, there is potentially negative consequences for the harmful effects of pornography. Like pornography can be harmful. And because I had gone so long without the, the counter voice, I wanted to be part of the solution. And so I quit my job and I started this project called 30 and 30 in handcuffs. And the goal was to build awareness. I didn't want to talk about my personal account at the time. And so because Fight was the, the organization that gave me the information, although there was other organizations out there, Fight was the one that I encountered. And so I, I built awareness for Fight and on marathon 26, I still hadn't talked about my personal account and my wife, she said, okay, Garrett, she kind of called me out a little bit. She was like, Garrett, if your goal is to change the conversation and if your goal is to eliminate shame, then don't you think that it'd be healthy for you to talk about your own personal account? And yeah. so at marathon 26 is when I finally told about my personal account publicly. And I don't think that that's necessary for everyone to do. In fact, I think it's actually better to not do that in most cases. Yeah. To do it publicly. Um, but that's what we did. And um, after the, the marathons um, is when I decided that I wanted to do a bike ride across the United States. So, that is oh, amazing. I guess... Yeah, one, one interesting thing about the handcuffs is the reason why I chose to run in handcuffs was because it represented the like uh, the compulsive behavior that I was experiencing at the time, like the restrictive mm -hmm. nature of pornography, where my desire to consume pornography was over, or excuse me, my desire to not consume pornography was overridden by my desire to consume it. So it was a weird concept, but I guess it's kind of like the definition of compulsivity yeah yeah and, and the, the perfect metaphor for what what it's like when you're doing the thing that you do not want to do but you can't help but do it and you can't do the thing that you would want to do to kind of counteract it um it's amazing man so how, how much did you run every day like what what distance so was it 26.2 miles oh my and, gosh yeah so they're like full marathons and um another like Another thing, like as we transition into the marathon, or I guess as we're talking about this marathon thing, like during my marathons back in 2016, um, Terry Cruz, that's when Terry Cruz came out and talked about his personal account. It was right, like, I, I think that. it was on Facebook or on YouTube. And it was during my runs, like as I was in the middle of these 30 marathons, 
is when he came out. And so people reached out to me and they're like, hey, did you hear that Terry Crews has also talked about this issue? And I was like, wow, the timing is great there because we're both on the same page. Um, and so actually I reached out to Terry Crews on social media and I was like, we do this thing called Substitute Saturday. Oh, and so for, for some context, I actually didn't do 30 marathons because on Substitute Saturday, people ran for me. So ah, the goal okay. was to like get people involved and like build awareness. And cool. so Substitute Saturdays, people came in and they would run for me. So I didn't end up running a marathon that day, but I invited Terry Cruz, like, hey, Terry, can you run and post about it and show support? And he's like, of course. So him wow. and his boy, him and his boy went out and ran for Substitute Saturday. And so that was really cool. And, um, and then it ended and I was like, okay, well, that it got some, like the goal was to get attention to fight the new drug. And I was like, yeah, I got some attention, but I wanted to do a little bit more. And I figured since I had already quit my job, like now is maybe the perfect time. And yeah. even <laughs> when I was 16, I put the goal to ride my bike across the United States. I had this bucket list in this journal that I kept. And one of the bucket list items was to ride my bike coast to coast. Wow. And so I was like, I can incorporate this coast to coast journey. And it's like killing two birds with one stone. It's building awareness and it's accomplishing a bucket list item at the same time. Yeah. And so I asked my wife, can I do this project? I want to do this project. And the first words out of her mouth were, you have to do it, which Love is kind that. of inspiring. And so I, I continued, like I said, I, I quit my job. And so we decided to do this and I bought a plane ticket to Virginia. And then I rode to San Francisco dragging chains. Wow, that's amazing. And, and Fight has done a really good job capturing that story. I, I think I've watched your video maybe four or five times. For me, it just kind of never gets old. And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, the kind of towards the end of the journey. So here you are, you're biking. You didn't just want like chains for symbolism. You wanted chains that were actually heavy so that even when it's not an incline, effort is still required. Like you really wanted to do this thing right and symbolize it. Um, tell us a little bit about what started to happen to these chains uh, towards the end of your of your bike journey because it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so the the day that I started the, the bike ride, I didn't know that I was going to pull chains. That still wasn't like part okay. of this journey. And I began this like getting ready and then I was like this needs something more like it needs more symbolism and so I went to Home Depot and I got like their heaviest duty chain and um, then I got these carabiners and I connected the the carabiners to the chain and I, I had an idea of pulling I didn't know what I was going to pull I was actually going to maybe pull a tire which didn't make sense but it was like working through this process so I had like a rope that connected to myself it's like a piece of exercise equipment that I had and so I had brought that out there with me of like as I was still trying to decide what to do and so I had that and I, I started with the chains and the chains there was some you know after 21 days <clears throat> of riding across the United States and like through the Appalachians of Virginia and Kentucky the chain started to fall off and it wasn't the chain that broke <clears throat> the chain yeah there was wear and tear on them i actually have some chains right here that, from my bike ride so oh, you cool. can there's like there's wear and tear on them but what actually disconnected was the carabiner because it was a weaker metal 
And so mm-hmm. those chains started falling off gradually. And by day 21, all the chains had fallen off. And the symbolism there is going back to why didn't, why couldn't I just stop? Like when I got married and um, it's because I, I had that, I had to work through it. I had to push forward um, and release the, the chain, the heaviness of that. It's that beautiful. Compulsive behavior. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. And I think it, it does speak to that recovery journey, which requires a lot of consistency, right? Like it's not like you can't just clip the carabiner overnight, so to speak, and, and suddenly the chains aren't there. It really does take time to chip away at it. Um, I'm curious, when you were doing these, the marathons and the bike journey, are you still struggling? Like is that kind of running in conjunction with bringing awareness or had at that point, had you made a recovery? Where were you at in that part? I don't think, I don't, I don't think I'll ever put myself above pornography consumption. Um, meaning that tomorrow I could consume pornography and, um, but I will say that at the time I would probably consider myself not fully recovered. Okay. Um, now I do, I consider myself in a, in a healthy state. Yeah. Um, but I think that at the time it wasn't fully recovered, but I think that it's interesting to note that one of the things that was benefiting me was all of this aerobic exercise. <laughs> and if you think I've never participated in the 12 step program, but I know it's great for some people and the 12th step is to help someone else. And so those two things were at my benefit. I was helping someone else. So that was my 12th step in a sense. And then the aerobic exercise, it's not, there's, there's research that shows that aerobic exercise, when it comes to stress management, it's not just correlational, it's causal. And so in a, in a way, like I'm in, I'm reducing, I'm managing my stress and like working through this process. And um, I can't say that from the time I heard the, the presentation by Fight the New Drug until that moment that I didn't turn back to pornography, there was definitely a process there. Yeah. And I, I tried not to have that all or nothing mentality. And I'm not condoning and saying that a little bit of pornography consumption is okay um, because there's still harmful effects. But I, I did turn back to it and then it would remind me like, oh, like actually you don't want to because it you know, it invites deceit and uh, fuels things like resentments and arrogance and entitlement and impulsivity and compulsivity. So um, long answer is that I probably wasn't fully recovered. I think that would maybe go against science. Sure. Um, But I was definitely on a journey there. Yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate your honesty, Garrett. And it's not, I don't think in any way it takes away from the experience. In fact, I think it adds to it just to think you have this beautiful journey of um, recovery and raising awareness. And I, I can imagine the two feel each other a little bit. Because um, like you said, all of the built-in process of your journey there, like uh, to do the aerobic exercise, you're spreading the word, um, you're, you're getting it out there, you're doing something consistently, you're sharpening your mind even, you know, to run 30 marathons in 30 days, like it, it requires a lot of agility on several different fronts. And um I just think it's beautiful, man. It's an incredible, incredible story. Um, can you tell us a little bit then about like what, what happens after? So it sounds like the, the bike ride um, was pretty shortly after the marathon. So I'm, I'm envisioning like, okay, you've quit your job. 
you're kind of going through, I would say like a, almost like a transformational kind of season here, like some major life adjustments. You're working through this, um, doing some self-discovery. And then what do you do after, after a bike ride? Cause you obviously didn't decide to do another physical challenge. You didn't decide to climb Everest or something. Um, what was the response afterwards? What'd you do? So the footage that we have from the bike ride, it was my buddy who his parents live in West Virginia and he was out there and he came down to film. And so my goal was to capture as much as I could of this process because yeah, it was to build awareness in the moment, but then I also wanted to take that story and somehow package it into like a video of some sort. That was the ultimate goal. So like the footage that you see in the video, that's my buddy filming. And so he's a professional photographer and videographer. And so that's why it, there's a lot of the video that looks really clean and really good. Okay, that's not cool. off of my iPhone. But then after that, I was on my own. And <clears throat> when I got back from this journey across the United States, I was going to get back to work, you know, get a job and, <clears throat> and um, continue doing what I love, which is being a husband and father and all of the activities that I enjoy. And so I start doing those things <clears throat> and then fight the new drug reached out to me and they're like, we want to do a video on your experience. And so they sent out a crew and did a short video and they put together a, a video that's, you know, a few minutes long and that's the one you've watched. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so I was excited because that was the goal was to build awareness and help someone else. And I thought that there's another kid out there. I just kind of wondered like, what if I had this education when I was in junior high or high school? I'm not saying that it would have stopped my consumption completely at that age, but it would have made me think twice. It would have made me consider yeah. the harmful effects. And I think that it would have helped me. And so I, I did have that intention. And so when Fight the New Drug offered this opportunity to make a video, I was like, of course, like that was the goal. They made this video and they started using it in their presentations um, in junior highs and high schools and colleges and things. And then they reached out and said, do you want to present your own story? Um, because we at Fight the New Drug, we, we, um, what we do is we aggregate research and personal accounts and information, and then we package them and present them in different mediums. And so one of the mediums is a live presentation, kind of like what I've talked about. And so I ended up starting presenting um, for Fight the New Drug and part of the presentation was that video. So I would talk about the brain, the heart, and the world, or the individual relationships and societies, how it negatively affects these areas. And during that, during that presentation, I would introduce my video and just a short little explanation as to kind of how I arrived there. Wow. And, um, and then at that time, I was working a couple jobs in addition to presenting for fight. And I, I got jobs and I didn't love them. It wasn't something that I was necessarily passionate about um, or that I wanted to make a career out of. But I got them with the intention of being able to never deny an opportunity to present. Um, so they were flexible, like full commission jobs. Okay. And so I was able to leave whenever I wanted to present. And so um, today, fast forward to today, I started presenting in 2016, and today I've presented to, like you said, nearly 200 audiences in like over 20 states and three countries, and um, it's been a really cool experience. And the reason why I put the goal to never miss an opportunity is like it just was like in the back of my mind a little bit, like if I, I just want to be there for someone else, 
And my goal in doing the projects and in presenting isn't to shame someone for their pornography consumption. Like if, if someone consumes pornography and they enjoy it, I'm not here to shame that person. I think the reason why I did these things is because I wanted to be there for the person that had unwanted porn consumption, yeah. or problematic porn consumption. And um, it's pretty cool to see as we go and present, you know, like it seems like 70%, 80% of the kids after the presentation, they come up and they sign what we call the fighter pledge, which means okay. like they are, they're willing to consider these things. And um, in, in a sense, they're becoming a fighter. Um, so yeah, it's cool to see that 70, 80% of kids are like, yeah, like I'm on board to consider these things. That's amazing. I mean, that's a huge deal. Like, I think you're, you're kind of mentioning that as the tail end of, of your story there, but I, I mean, that is a huge deal. Cause I think anyone who has had a struggle knows how pivotal those early years are. And it's one of my favorite things about fight, you know, is that you guys are really focusing on the youth and it's not, um, it's not to get charity or to get people support. It's because if you can get people informed at a young age, um, hopefully you change the trajectory of their life, right? Like it's kind of nipping it in the bud. And I read a stat somewhere that said, um, I forget, it was like, it was very high. It was like maybe 60, 70% of teenagers would rank uh, not recycling as more dangerous than viewing pornography. Um, it, was, it was something like that. Um, and it was just like the distortions around this kind of content is, um, is huge. It's huge in this younger generation. Um, cause they're not getting informed. So I think what you, what you guys are doing is phenomenal. Um, one of your main responsibilities with fight is consider before consuming, uh, this great podcast. And I wanted to talk a little bit about it because, uh, of two reasons. One, it's, a, it's an incredible podcast and you're, you're doing such a good job. You're interviewing, um, you know, experts and doctors. Uh, I, I think you guys interviewed Terry Crews pretty early on as well. Right. So it's kind of came back full circle, which is pretty cool. Um, I guess I would just love to hear, like, what are you learning as you interview all these different people who are quite brilliant in their respective regards, whether it's from an academic standpoint, a personal journey, or they're activists, or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, what are some of the themes that you see in these interviews, and what are some of the things that you're learning? So <clears throat> they vary because, like you said, we sit down and have conversations with experts and activists and people with personal accounts and survivors of sexual abuse or sex trafficking. So the conversations do vary a lot. The, I don't know, it's interesting because it's kind of a tough subject to get true statistics on or true information about because yeah. of the, of the, of what this is that we talk about. And um, there's a term called external validity, which is like a term used in psychology and what that means is that what is produced in the laboratory can't always be replicated in real life. And what happens or what, what happens in real life can't always be replicated in the lab. And what happens in the lab doesn't translate into real life. Yeah. And so I think that empirical evidence is important. And with this subject, I also think that anecdotal evidence is maybe just as important because we get to sit down and have conversations with people that maybe it's the first time that they're having a conversation about the, the harmful effects of pornography in their life and um, or at least publicly. Yeah. And so we get to almost do a little bit of a, a casual case study where we get to learn about what these patterns were and 
how they overcame these challenges. Um, and then it's really cool to, to meet with the experts and the influencers who have brands and personal brands and brands that they work with, but yet they're still willing to talk about this topic in a healthy way. And so it's really inspiring. Everyone that we get to talk to has been amazing. And um, I've, I've learned a ton, as you can imagine. Oh yeah. Cause you get to, you get to talk with amazing individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any individuals in particular that have really stood out uh, for, you know, one reason or another, not necessarily because they're famous. You've had some pretty well-known people on there, but any interviews in particular that jump out that uh, maybe if our listeners want to, Go, uh, go listen to the podcast. Any, any particular episodes you'd direct them to? Um, you know, one of my favorite episodes is with Maddie Corman. Okay. Um, she's a playwright out of New York and her husband, um, is a famous producer Hmm. in Hollywood. And, um, she, her husband ended up ended up getting caught with child pornography and it became very public very quick and her strength to me it stood out when we're talking about betrayal trauma i mentioned that it wasn't easy for my spouse to receive this information um i think that her personal account was very inspiring because man she experienced a lot of betrayal trauma and a lot of shame Hmm. and um, they've decided to stick together and they are um, still together today. And he's working through his challenge, um, his addiction. And so that was a really cool episode, really inspiring episode. She actually has a book, um, an audio book, and she does a live play. And so that's how we ended up hearing about her. And um, her book is called Accidentally Brave. Okay. And so you can check her book out and, and that podcast episode. She's one person that definitely stands out as like, dang, that was a pretty intense conversation. And um, what a powerful and inspiring story as well. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Um, really powerful. Um, Garrett, as we kind of wrap here, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what fight the new drug is up to these days? Uh, where are some of your guys' uh, focuses and, um, and any kind of major projects you have on the go? I'd love to hear about that. And just any anything else, any other ways that our, our listeners could, uh, could connect with you guys and maybe find out a little bit more about what you guys do? Yeah, I think that your listeners might find, find value in our documentary, which is Brain Heart World. Um, they can view it free at brainheartworld.org. And it can be a tool that they can use to um, whenever they want at their convenience. Um, Another tool that is very beneficial is our conversation blueprint at ftnd.org forward slash blueprint. And I, we didn't get into it too much today, but I didn't, looking back, I didn't approach the conversation with my spouse in the best way possible. And I wish that I would have had the conversation blueprint at that time. And so if, if any of your listeners are in a position where they have unwanted porn consumption and they have to tell a significant other, whether that's their spouse or their child or their parents or whatever, um, you can go into the conversation blueprint and 
click on who you are and who you are going to tell. And then it gives it's advice from experts. And, and so it really does help you navigate the conversation in a healthy way. Um, So those are a couple of tools that I think might find your listeners might find value in. Yeah, that's amazing. No, that, that sounds like a very valuable resource. And just out of curiosity, now that you know about this conversation blueprint, you think about what you did, um, what would you do differently next time? Anything in particular? Yeah. So I disclosed it to my spouse at nighttime. We were in bed laying down in the dark. And <laughs> i that's when I finally got the courage to tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't know how to state it. And so I left her hanging for a moment. Like I was, she knew that I had something to disclose, but she didn't know what it was. And I was trying to build up the courage to get it out, like to, to finally spit it out. And um, so I think that raised her anxiety and um, raised those negative things. Um, maybe just like curiosity, like, what is he going to tell me? Like, this is, and so it became worse. It like, built up until she found out what it was. And then, so anyway, I think what I would change is I would probably do it like on a walk when you have some alone time, um, maybe not having to be face to face. And maybe when you have maybe a long weekend, if you're a person that has kids, maybe uh, try to get someone to watch your kids so that you can have a little bit of time without that distraction. Yeah. Um, And I, I didn't have a ton of resources to, to look at, or I maybe did have access to them, but I really didn't utilize them. So I would just say, look for resources, um, you know, like what you do with coaching or what Fight the New Drug does, like just look for resources to help you in this journey because it's not easy. But, you know, going back to our relationship then and our relationship now, like I am so grateful that I finally engaged in that self-disclosure. And, um, you know, my wife also engaged in some openness and self-disclosure and we have continued to do that over the years and the acceptance is high, the empathy is high and, you know, the moments of bliss are high. Going back to that Mm -hmm. phrase, the moments of bliss are not free. And I think that we enjoy a different level of happiness today because of the fact that we were able to address this, this thing. Yeah, oh, I, I believe it. And I, I know for me, like some of the guys that have come to me who are married or in a relationship and haven't mustered up the courage to have that conversation, um, when you kind of broach the subject, it's pretty scary uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned, the fear of rejection, the uncertainty around it and everything. But when they do get to that place, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's moments of bliss. Like you said, I think it's, uh, they're always so relieved. And, and usually if it's done well, uh, or at least, you know, to some degree um, of decency, the, the results are always positive for the relationship. Usually it, it has a better long-term impact. Um, Garrett, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I do want to ask one final question, which is um, if, if there's somebody listening today who maybe is uh, six, seven years back, you know, and they're in that place where they are struggling they are not really getting the help or, or anything like that for, for those reasons. You know, there's that fear of rejection. Um, maybe there's this fear that their life's going to change, um, that they're going to have to pay a price uh, for getting some of the freedom they desired. What would you say to them? Any, any final words of wisdom or advice? So you work with mainly men. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So 
the way that I'll explain this is that I'll talk about masculinity real quick. And I think that one aspect, one trait that is traditionally viewed as masculine is independence and courage. And so I want to challenge those people who are stuck and who haven't been able to address it. And I want to encourage you to be to, to incorporate those attributes, independence and courage. And the way that I want to talk about those really quickly is independence. We often think that that means that we can't ask for help or that we have to do it by ourselves. Um, but the thing is, is that you can't be independent when you have a dependency to, to pornography. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So that's the first thing is acknowledge that. So compulsivity is the opposite of independence. Then the courage part is doing stuff that scares you, right? Doing the right thing, even though it's scary. And so, yes, it's scary to tell the truth. Yes, it's scary. It's not fun to address some of these issues, but as incorporating some of those masculine traits, and I'm not saying that only men can incorporate independence and that men can only incorporate courage. Of course. Um, definitely both. Yeah, anyone can and can do that. But since we're talking about men, yeah, incorporate those things and and do it anyway. Find find the tools necessary and um, and make it happen. It's amazing. Garrett Johnson of Fight the New Drug, thanks so much for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we, we thank you for what you do and um, just want to encourage your listeners to keep doing what they're doing. And um, yeah, thanks for having us on. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Garrett Johnson of Fight the New Drug. And man, I am so grateful to have connected with these guys and with Garrett specifically. I just, uh, I love his heart. I love his story. And I really believe that the work he's doing on uh, the Consider Before Consuming podcast is groundbreaking, you know, and, and Fight has had this opportunity to, you know, talk about a really private and taboo subject with some very public figures like um, Terry Crews and Lamar Odom. And Garrett is very humble about those parts of his work, uh, but I'd, I don't mind boasting about it a little bit here uh, post-interview. Um, it's incredible. So I'd highly encourage you to go check out the, the podcast. There's a link in the show notes, and I have put a link to my interview there as well. Um, he asked some great questions and um, and yeah, you kind of get to hear a little, I would say a different side of my story. And, and again, I, I interview differently depending on the platform. Some platforms are a little bit more uh, spiritually and faith associated. And so that kind of flavors the questions and, and my answers as well. Uh, with Fight being a, a neutral kind of non-religious, non-legislative uh, organization, uh, the interview was different. And uh, it brought out some different sides of my story, which was really fun. So encourage you to go check it out. And, um, and also uh, the documentary that Garrett mentioned is phenomenal. Uh, Brain, uh, what is it? Brain Heart World. Very well done, uh, well-researched, well-backed, and um, just the quality is, is phenomenal. So these guys are great. Everything they do uh, gets a big stamp of approval from me. I hope you go check them out. And if you did like this interview and it really uh, impacted you, uh, please leave a rating and review for the podcast. It really means the world to me. But more importantly, uh, you rating this tells other people that there's valuable content here and it gives other guys a chance to experience some life-changing content that could really uh, help them in their journey to recovery. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll talk again soon. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to The New Man Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, you can share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, please sign up for the weekly newsletter at www.sathiasam.com or follow on Instagram at Sam. Thanks again and see you next time.